You're listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. Interference Archive is a social space, exhibition venue, and OpenStack's archive of social movement material. Our work is rooted in the belief that our shared histories should be held in common and accessible to all. I'm Charlie Morgan, and on this week's episode of Audio Interference, to accompany our current exhibition Finally Got the News, we're going to be talking about work. Work today, and work in the 1970s. In that period of the 70s, till we get, maybe till 1980, is you have strikes, you have job actions of all sorts, you have work to rule, you have a much greater working class traditions. I wasn't actually originally going to do a call centre study, but it's the easiest kind of precarious work to get into in London. You sign up to an agency, you end up in a call centre in London. Our conception was we're going to work within the union to organize caucuses which could challenge, which could fight for what the workers wanted. And in the course of that, we felt we could recruit people from those movements to our socialist perspective. That kind of affective labor is a shift from the exploitation of workers' bodies to their minds as well, to their emotions. And finding ways to mobilize that to sell stuff that people don't need over the phone. You just heard the voices of Dan the Bots and Jamie Woodcock. Dan is a labour organiser, the author of many books on labour politics, and a founding member of Teamsters for a Democratic Union. He also wrote the chapter, In the Factories and in the Streets, Going to the Working Class, for the upcoming Finally Got the News exhibition catalogue. Jamie is the author of Working the Phones, a 2016 book based on his experiences working in a non-unionised call centre in London. You'll hear from Jamie later, but first the 1970s. In the Factories and in the Streets deals with Dan's experience as a member of the International Socialists in the 1970s and the ways in which American leftists deliberately took working class jobs to try and build a mass workers movement and to fight for socialism. In this chapter he writes, We were inspired by the working class upheavals of the late 1960s and early 1970s. So when I spoke to Dan earlier this year, I began by asking him to provide some further context. Certainly, uh, as I was growing up in the 1950s and early 1960s going to school, everything seemed um, stable in the American economy in many ways. Things had been, the economy had been growing since the end of World War II. There was the expectation everyone was going to get a better job than their parents had and uh, that life was going to become, be getting better for everyone. And I think uh, into this uh, picture of a, uh, of a, a placid, uh, growing, happy America, of course, came first the African-American civil rights movement, and then uh, the movement against the war in Vietnam. But you have 20 years then of social upheaval. And that social upheaval, of course, affected everyone in the society. And uh, and the, the black movement in particular had legitimated social protest after McCarthyism. The idea of handing someone a leaflet, of participating in a demonstration, of carrying a sign, of sitting down uh, to block a building, uh, engaging in civil disobedience, all of those things became legitimate in the society and, uh, and gradually spread into the working class. And so all of this made the workplace and made labor unions much more 
interesting and exciting and active. Are there any particular ones, any particular moments in that sort of period, late 60s, early 70s, that you really think uh, ignited a lot of people or events that people really coalesced around? Well, um, I think that the first movement that caught everyone's attention was perhaps the Black Lung Movement. The Black Lung Movement was a movement among miners and miners' families, particularly in the state of West Virginia, but in other mining areas, of people who had become uh, disabled because of the black lung disease. But the miners' movement engaged in a strike in West Virginia to pass a law about black lung. And in the United States, that was quite an amazing and radical development. There was also a strike uh, that began as wildcat strikes in the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, a union of truck drivers, warehousemen, and many other workers. And then, of course... I grew up in Southern California, and in California, uh, the United Farm Workers, led by Cesar Chavez, uh, became a great uh, inspiration to many people. So in all of these areas, this was quite an amazing uh, labor movement that was developing, and in which we, as young socialists of different stripes with different ideologies, we went and sought jobs in industry, became involved in unions, and, uh, and attempted to raise a variety of political ideas in those unions. We, we decided in the group that I was in, and other groups did similar things, we, we focused on a few unions. We focused on the telephone workers. At that time, uh, Ma Bell was the problem, uh, Ma is the name of the Bell Telephone Company, we referred to as Ma Bell. We became involved in the Teamsters Union, a very powerful union of transportation workers, where by coincidence, a couple of people in our organization had been involved in that upsurge in 1970. And our goal was then to get jobs in the biggest companies, in the biggest cities, where the unions were most powerful. Um, so could we then go back to your experiences, um, so sort of where you were in this period, where you worked? Um... Uh, some political groups that were more authoritarian would just say to someone, you know, we are sending you to X city to do this. Our group never did that. Our group uh, tried to, to convince the... We had a discussion of the group as a whole, our few hundred members, maybe we were 300, 350 members. I became convinced by that conversation that I would move to Chicago. And uh, when I first got there, though, I had a, uh, a wife, a child to support, and I got a job first with a housing authority library as a librarian for a few, I just stayed a few months. Then I got a job as a social worker. And that was an interesting experience. But my goal was to get into one of the industrial unions. We had this, you know, we had this emphasis on industrial unions. And so a friend of mine came over and said, hey, I see that we can go to truck driving school for free because of the neighborhood we live in. And so I went, I and my friend went to Trainco, which was a truck driving school uh, and most everyone else there was black or Latino, mostly black workers. And uh, we went to this truck driving school and learned to drive tractor-trailer trucks and uh, got a, a truck driver's license. And we went to work um, in the city of Chicago. I got a job. I tried to get jobs at bigger companies, and I ended up working for a small freight local company we call Local Cartage, or in some places they say Drayage. These are little companies that deliver uh, freight within a, a, a local area. In our case, it was a 50-mile radius of the post office in downtown Chicago. So I drove between uh, Gary, Indiana, more or less, and uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, or something like that. In that workplace, it was interesting that the workplace had many people who'd been there for decades, a lot of people related by family, most of them very 
you know, ethnic white workers, very conservative. But it was interesting also that there were a couple guys that I met who were from the older working class in Chicago, from poorer working class neighborhoods in the center of the city, who were interestingly had a different mentality, who weren't racist, white workers who weren't racist. I don't know what the unique experiences were that made them different than many of the other uh, workers there. And also black workers who had been hired by the uh, Teamster consent decree in early 70s. So even in that workplace, I had people come up to me and say, hey, I'd like to join your organization. One guy come up and said, Dan, you seem to me like uh, Robin Hood. I'd like to become one of your band of merry men. I just wanted to ask a sort of technical question, um, and it's partly because you mentioned Gary and Deanna out there, and you spoke about, you know, you would go to these places and get a job. I mean, when I think of Gary and Deanna now, I think of, like, extremely high unemployment and people who live there find it hard to get jobs, let alone people who move there. I mean, how easy was it to sort of pick an industry and get a job in that industry and work there? Yeah, that's a very good question, and you make a very important point with it. We were still in a period when... Um, it was uh, not impossible to get a job. Uh, no doubt, as a white, uh, young white guy, uh, uh, it was easier for me than it might have been for some others. But even so, black, Latino workers, women workers, white people, we, we were getting jobs, people on the left, in all kinds of industries and so on. Uh, one time I remember talking to uh, Pete Camarada, who uh, became a leader of TDU, and and he was talking to me about working in these uh, trucking companies there. And he'd say, well, the boss fired you. He'd say, well, fuck you. We don't care. We're, go next door and get a job, you know. Uh, of course, also, uh, when we went to work, uh, we dropped our college education or our graduate school education or whatever it was. Some people, a couple people had PhDs. And uh, people were going to work in these places out of an idealistic commitment to being part of building a democratic working class movement. And, uh, and we lied in order to be able to become, uh, to get a job and to be able to establish relations. When we went into those unions, I should say, we did not go in there, at least in my group. I, I think this varied a lot. But in my group, we did not go in there with the notion that we have all the answers to lead the working class and that we are the revolutionary leadership or something like that. We went in to these workplaces with the notion that we had we had some good ideas, we had some bright ideas, and we had lots of skills. But the people who actually understood the workplace, who understood the industry, who understood the union, its history, were very often the rank and file workers who'd been there for a long time. So you mentioned that when you were working in the truck uh, trucking, people would come up to you and say you were like Robin Hood. Could I join your organization? Did you? So you never had to keep anything secret about you, why you were there or organization from like management or anything like that? Well, uh, it, it, everything varied. We probably had a mistaken strategy at first that we, um, we very flagrantly, openly sold our socialist newspaper to everybody. Uh, and it was partly the moment. It was possible in, in some workplaces. In other places, uh, we had members who uh, were threatened with violence or beaten up. Uh, there were people in the reform movement who had been killed in the Teamsters Union. So uh, in other places, one had to be cautious about various things. You had to be cautious in how you talk to people about being a leftist, and you had to be cautious with being a union activist who might disrupt union contracts and relationships that were worth millions or hundreds of millions of dollars. On that note, we're going to jump forward 40 years in time and hear more from Jamie. In writing his book, Working the Phones, 
and unlike Dan's organising in the 1970s, Jamie definitely did have to keep his work secret from the bosses. The book is a result of undercover research he conducted while employed at a UK call centre, and he spoke about it at Interference Archive earlier this year. Here's some of what was discussed. Um, I wasn't actually originally going to do a call centre study, but it's the easiest kind of precarious work to get into in London. So I kind of let, let myself be taken into one. I thought it might be a cafe or service work or catering, but you sign up to an agency, you end up in a call centre in London. That's, that's the work that you end up in. Um, but I think it's useful as an example because technology has been applied in a very particular way in the call centre. Because of the integration of computers and telephones, they're particularly susceptible to forms of technological control, which we now see being pushed out into even more workplaces. And I see call centres as the kind of testing ground for that. You know, in a condition where there was not organisation, capital forced through this restructuring and developed loads and loads of techniques which are now used in seamless uh, delivery Uber and so on. These were tested in, in call centres. And that's why I think they're so important. And I write a little bit of, uh, in the book about how doing this kind of research used to be much more common. So in the UK in the 70s, people would go and work in a factory and then they would write a book about it. And this was just something that was part of being in a sociology department or an employment relations department. You would go and do these studies. Um, and I guess one of the effects of neoliberalism, I mean, it's a problematic term in many ways, but the kind of disintegration of that industrial kind of workforce in the UK has also led to a disintegration in that kind of research, that it's harder to find the factory gates now. You know, it's harder to find those big workplaces to go to. But what it was revealing about it is that universities, it's not about whether they think this research should happen or not, it's about their fear of being sued. And I think the book is an intervention to say, that's not what's important. What's important to us is understanding and having to, being able to make some kind of intervention into the world. And if that means we have to go undercover sometimes, then so be it. In one of the things that, that, that happened during the call centre, and this is one of these moments where I went to my supervisors and I told them this had happened, and I kind of was worried whether or not they'd believe me. Um, has there, anybody ever watched The Undercover Boss? So there was actually another undercover researcher in the call center while I was there. Um, and when it happened, I had this kind of moment of thinking, not like no one's going to believe this. Like, this is completely unbelievable. But somebody from the insurance firm who'd become a consultant went undercover in the call center to find out how to speed up the work. So he was working that to find out what it was people were doing and turn that against them. Um, and I think we can't leave those techniques to the undercover boss. You know, these are techniques we should be using and we should be fighting for. And in a sense, having these things in pop culture makes it easier to talk about them. But it also means we can be clear that these things can be used for the other side. You know, that going undercover is a technique that is political and we have to be clear about our politics when we go into it. And that means thinking about what you report on, you know, thinking about how you organize, not putting those people you're working with, jobs at risk. You know, ultimately, I had a job to go back to. You know, and that meant not force. You know, I would in involve in things, but I wouldn't lead them. You know, we'd suggest ideas and we'd talk about them, but it would be completely irresponsible for me to to force people into a position where they'd all, all lose their jobs. And so, thinking about the politics of these things is really important. If you'd like to learn more about Jamie's work, there's a copy of Working the Phones at Interference Archive. But to end this episode. 
we're going to hear a bit more about the 1970s. You spoke about earlier how it became normal again for people to hand out pamphlets on the street or accept them and you were produce, you had say, handing out your newspaper at the workplace. And I guess seeing as this is going alongside an exhibition of material produced in the 1970s, I wondered if you could just speak about the kind of printed material that you and others were producing and distributing at the time. Well, just about everything you could imagine. That is, um, most socialist groups tried to have a newspaper, uh, maybe ideally weekly. And it was a socialist newspaper that had their party line on it. Um, we put out newspapers that were not explicitly socialists for all kinds of causes in the labor movement, in the women's movement. We produced pamphlets analyzing different industries, what was going on in the steel industry, the auto industry, um, to have some more depth. We put out uh, handbills of all sorts, you know, uh, leaflets, flyers, uh, on every kind of issue. Our organizations were involved not only in issues in the union, the working place, we were also involved in fights uh, anti-racist fights. So there was um, leaflets about a, a black political prisoner, uh, Gary Tyler, that people were fighting to get out of uh, out of jail. The literature we put out uh, varied from group to group, I think, and varied from uh, item to item, cause to cause. Some of the literature was uh, inspired by the uh, style of socialist realism, uh, particularly those people coming out of the Stalin-Mao uh, tradition, uh, you know, five figures in profile with one right arm raised, uh, marching into the sunrise uh, with uh, Mao and uh, Stalin in the clouds or something. And, uh, and some of it, though, was uh, Lisa Lyons, who was a wonderful illustrator, who's still the illustrator for New Politics, a journal of socialist thought, of which I am a co-editor today, uh, was a wonderful, uh, and is, remains a wonderful designer, cartoonist, uh, illustrator, who produced uh, much more uh, uh, unique and, and new style uh, illustrations. Fantastic. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say about the period of the 1970s that we haven't covered yet? Well, one, you know, it is uh, the 1970s, the, the late 60s and the, and the early 70s, that, period, that decade, say 65 to 75, was a period of enormous upheaval. And it would be a mistake not to also mention the ghetto rebellions that took place, which were a part of the struggle uh, for civil rights, uh, especially after the victory of civil rights in the South, to say we need civil rights in the North, too. If you think about the, that period, you have to think about the civil rights movement, the black power movement, the ghetto rebellion, the anti-war movement, the rise of the women's movement, that this was a period of tremendous upheaval. If we're going to talk about today changing American society, we have to raise hell on that scale. We need a movement today that cannot simply protest against Trump, but that can become an impediment to Trump, that become an impediment to the government, an impediment to the corporations, that can interfere interfere with production, interfere with business as usual, that can uh, throw a monkey wrench in the, in the works, that can stop the machine. And that's going to take millions of people in the street. And people who want to talk about political reform, of which, in which I'm a believer, and trying to develop an independent political force, and people talk about doing that a little in the Democratic Party or independently or whatever. But not, no strategy is going to work until we reach the scales of disruption that happened in the United States in the 1930s and again in the 1960s and 70s. That's where we have to go. You've been listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. The archive is collectively run and volunteer-powered. If you like what you heard today, consider making a donation to help keep the archive up and running. 
just go to interferencearchive.org and click on donate. From all of us at Audio Interference, thanks for listening. Thank you.